Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Euro area. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Susanna, directors of Euro Intelligence in Oxford. So we're leading this week with Russia and what Putin is up to in Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, Susanna, you've been writing about it this week. Why should all eyes be on the Suvalki Corridor? So this is a borderline between Poland and Lithuania. It's uh, 113 kilometers long. And when you look to the east, this is bordering with Belarus. And when you look to the west, it's Kaliningrad, which is former Königsberg, a German Königsberg, which was taken over by the Russians in 1945 after World War II. So principally, this is Russian and they, they have all sorts of links with Russia. They have visa travels assured to Kaliningrad. So now, why is this important in this current climate? We had this week, uh, we had the visit of the president Lukashenko from Belarus. Yeah. That guy. Yes, that guy. And the outcome of the meeting with Putin was that they agreed on a political union on 26, 27 chapters, roadmaps, they call it, for further cooperation on an administrative level or governance level. Explicitly, what is, has not been tackled or what they couldn't agree on was on taxation. And according to the Belarus um, new state-owned news agency, also on defense. So everyone was watching this meeting with expectations that this would be like a, either the worst case scenario, an annexation or an Anschluss, and in the best case scenario, an economic agreement only. In terms of time frame, they aim for concluding the full political union, which is part of what Russia asks them to do in order for uh, them to guarantee that their energy prices will be discounted. So yeah. Belarus gets uh, their energy into 90% or something like that from Russia and they get a discounted, discounted price. So Russia said last year, I think it was last year, no, two years ago, um, if you want us to continue with that, you need to seek a closer union with us. And that's what they've been doing. I mean, it's not a surprise, but it's it got a new impetus with the fact when there was reports that there was a plot. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> reports in our Russia <laughs> that there was an alleged plot. Of course, <laughs> the baddies behind were the Western uh, world, and apparently the U.S. They arrested one U.S. citizen who apparently had sort of a they had Zoom meetings. It was a lawyer. Zoom meetings going on and. Jason uh, Bourne is present. Yes, Jason Bourne. <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, Putin mentioned this also, the cyber attack on the Belarus infrastructure in his State of the Union address to Parliament, to Russian Parliament. So there's something going on and the narratives have been prepared that there is a threat from coming from the West and that they have to counter that. What is particularly worrying is that they implicate Poland into this. And you know, the, the, the Savalki Corridor, the danger is if you look at the geography of the region, if you look at uh, the Baltic Republics, they're only connected physically to the EU by this 115 or whatever kilometers border. And if Russia, and Russia is on both sides of that border, I mean, both on the sort of the, the lateral ends of that border. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the border is between Lithuania and Poland, but on these sort of long ends of the border, there's, there's Kaliningrad and there's Belarus. So there is obviously, you know, the, the EU has a long, or Europe has a long history of corridors. I mean, there is, <laughs> you know, the, after the First World War, we had the Gdansk Corridor, which, which connected the free state of Danzig, Gdansk, 
which is in northern Poland, with Germany. You know, you could think of Nord Stream 2 as a corridor, as an energy corridor. Now you have the Suwalki gap. I mean, there's an awful lot of geopolitical stuff going on in this area, traditionally, but still now. There are circumstances under which this could turn into a a cold war, warm wars, a hot war. Um, You know, there are various scenarios that could happen. Now, I don't think Russia has any designs on the Baltic Republic at this point, but you never know. The strategy of Putin is, you know, not that transparent. And, you know, he certainly keeps uh, keeps us guessing. Yes. So this is a very big political, very big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Bruno Macau said, uh, I mean, it only matters for him in that so far that he would become a security actor in Europe. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, what does this mean for the EU? Because Belarus is a member of the Eastern Partnership. I mean, 12 years ago, it was signing on to, you know, to integrate a little bit more with, with the European Union. So... What what do you think the policy response should be um, from the EU's end, or should there be one? Should they maybe just? That's a good question. I, what I fear is happening now that the Germans are doing their sort of their own foreign policy with Russia and you know continuing and stepping it up. Russia and Germany closing in on Poland. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I wouldn't accuse the Germans of a, of staging another Molotov ribbon drop pact, but. No. Uh, But there is a certain fear in Poland and, you know, one of the, I think a Polish minister accused Germany of plotting that. We saw this week the German, the prime minister of Saxony visiting Putin at a time like this, Mm. visiting him, sitting with him on the the sofa and basically saying, yeah, we're going to buy some, what is it, 30 million? million Oh, doses of the Sputnik vaccine, right? Oh, that's where that came from. I think it's approved. I mean, it's astonishing that they... I mean, I keep saying this. I mean, you know, they're, they're running the smear campaign against AstraZeneca, Sputnik, yeah. but it's virtually the same thing, uh, the same type of vaccines. And it's not the same thing. That difference is technical, but they're kind of the same family of vaccines. And, you know, we don't know whether it causes blood clots or not. We have no information on that. There's no testing done on that. That seems to be no issue with a, with a Russian vaccine from a German perspective. They're playing clearly politics with that. And, yeah. it's, it's, um, and it tells us that this isn't quite right. So if Russia, you know, moves into Belarus, as we wrote and Susanna wrote, the Ukrainian situation seems to be uh, diffused now. The threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. At least imminent. imminent. At least exactly. imminent. That seems to be happening. The bigger issue seems to be what's either happening in the Black Sea to the south and in Belarus to the north. Mm. That's where the action is. And, you know, this is dangerous. I mean, we're having the Black Sea situation that is a traditional hotspot of European conflict, often forgotten uh, in the sort of modern, in the modern days. But, you know, this is still an area which pitches Russia and Turkey to superpowers, you know, against one another. This could turn into another source of diplomatic confrontation between mm-hmm. between the West and the and Russia. It's just enough for Putin to seed doubt into the as you said, the Polish, when they start to doubt what what are the intentions. I mean, we don't know really what's going on. What are the real intentions from Putin? And we probably will never know. Uh, but there is definitely some strategic thinking behind and he has all the patience in the world to just watch with these little gestures and actually not be specific. They're talking about the threats and uh, how to counter them and leaving uh, it vague how and what it what the threat is and how they want to counter it. So it leaves everyone guessing. If I had to offer a speculation, it's not more than that. Putin once said the biggest tragedy that ever happened to his country is the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And while he's not a communist, he thinks in terms of empires. 
And one of the part of the empires of the Soviet Union was not only the territorial area of the Soviet Union, which obviously included Ukraine and Belarus, and obviously also the Baltic Republics, uh, but also the Warsaw Pact, which extends deep into the, the territory of which nowadays extends deep into the EU and into NATO. I don't think he will want to recreate the Warsaw Pact, but it's certainly, you know, he thinks of this geographic area as part of the wider sphere of Russian influence. I would assume that at the very least, he would want to neutralize those places rather than to turn them into sort of part of the West. Poland is, um, you know, the most anti-Russian or the most the state that's most hostile to Russia or the bigger states. It's surrounded by Russia and Germany. So the situation could easily lead to conflicts, uh, you know, diplomatic political conflicts between Poland and Germany. There seems to be no, uh, the Green Party aside, no party in Germany that seems to, you know, contradict this sort of general consensus that, you know, we have to have good relations with Russia. As the President Steinmeier said, you know, the pipeline is there because we lost the Second World War and because of the, mm. uh, because of our history, because we killed so many Russians uh, as a kind of, a, you know, as Politics a, as a guilt, politi- yeah. as a, exactly, goodwill gesture. The SPD has very close relations with Russia and they, the pipeline is really essentially part very central to the SPD's uh, policies. The CDU is on board for that too. Um, uh, the CSU is on board of that too. And the FDP, I think, is on board of that too. The AFD definitely and the left party almost certainly. Uh, so the only party that has some opposition to it, uh, voiced opposition to it, is the Greens. Um, but the Greens are not alone, uh, even if they do as well as the current polls predict, which is dubious, but they, they might. Uh, even then, they will not have the majority to to, to change the foreign policy single-handedly, uh, especially so since their priority will be on investment, infrastructure, digital, naturally green investment. Uh, so we don't see much of a change. So the geopolitical situation could come to a head, and Putin is probably right to speculate that Germany is the weak link. Uh, in the in the EU, and that he can through Germany produce instability. And if he gets the instability, produces instability on the eastern the EU's eastern border, and especially in that part of the you know in that part of the world between Poland and Lithuania, I think this is something we could um, you know we we would be nervous. You know, I have to say I'm nervous about this. Um, this yeah. is something that the EU should consider. As noted in his interest, it cannot stop uh, Belarus from forming a political union with Russia. But this is clearly, you know, a political union instigated by a dictator who has just faked an election victory, yeah. uh, and who, and we see now, they are trumping up a a coup attempt. They're basically <laughs> producing a coup. I mean, these women demonstrating there on the street. This is now a coup. Um, very evidently uh, um, propaganda, uh, but you can see where this is leading to. This yeah. is clearly, you know, setting the stage for repression and blaming others for. That's how conflicts start when you start blaming other countries uh, for for inter- interfering in your affairs. That gives you at least an excuse 
for military action. So there is a, a big test ahead for the EU foreign policy. No, I mean, it's a Blanco, it's this Blanco threat. That's the thing. If you are specific, we do disagree on this, then you can actually have foreign policy and you can have a foreign policy of disagreements. That's fine. But the problem is there is no specifics. It's just this general kind of hostility is the, the Western threat, the threat from or the plot uh, that comes from outside the outsiders. Once you define the outsiders, then you you clearly have a projection for enemies uh, from all sorts of misgivings, and actually also distract from what's going wrong at home. Uh, that's very uh, that's 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 how populists as well use and abuse uh, these narratives. Yeah, classic strategy. If we could return actually to the notion of, well, let's go back to the Greens actually, because uh, we had some movement, some big news happening there this week. Um, they finally selected a leader, uh, so did the CDU, CSU, but it seems like people on both sides are not exactly happy with the decision that their parties took. Wolfgang, could you tell me a little bit about what happened and the implications it has for the September elections? Yeah, I mean, we knew about the, what's happening in the CDU, CSU. They've been at war for a while and uh, they settled this, this conflict in the most extraordinary way um, through a genuine backroom stitch up quite openly. And uh, so they've, they settled for Laschet, who is deeply unpopular. The CDU hopes that he will recover. The last state elections in Northern Westphalia, when he became a prime minister and he dislodged a fairly popular social democrat prime minister there and people thought he was sort of the he's the dark horse of German politics. Yeah, everyone likes an underdog. People, exactly, the underdog. People don't take him seriously, but then he bounces back. And the CDU obviously had a candidate like this who was Helmut Kohl, who was always misjudged and underrated and then always kept winning elections. And they thought he's a bit like this, bit of a Rhinelander type, very pro-European in terms of his you know, attitudes, not in terms of what he does, actually, but in terms of how he speaks. The analogies are there. And, and of course, the CDU does not do, like to lose a power battle against the CSU because that's sort of the sister party, but it's a smaller sister party. And this was all about the internal relations. So they didn't care about the polls so much than, than about that. So, and obviously, if a party no longer cares about winning, but it cares about sorting out some internal conflicts, you know, that's a recipe for not winning, basically. And that's what the poll currently ref, polls currently reflect. Now, we have to be, bear in mind the five months to an election. Things can change. The Greens are doing well, uh, but we got sort of a wind of things that even at the Green Party, things can intrude in a very negative way. We yeah. heard, the, as you were referring to in your question, the co-leader of the Greens, Robert Harbeck, who stepped aside to let Annalena Baerbrock to become the, the chancellor candidate. And this mm -hmm. is the first time the Greens ever had this. And she has a decent chance of becoming chancellor. It's not, I mean, given the polls, there is a there is certainly a pathway for her to become chancellor. Um, but her co-leader, who was, you know, who was widely applauded for stepping aside and letting her take the lead because she's, you know, she's very competent. But he came, bounced back the next day to tell an interviewer that uh, he actually wanted the job himself. And, <laughs> and he implied without saying so outright, but the implication was that she only got it because she was a woman. Mm. And uh, that sounded, you know, Boo. not only sort of gave this sort of bad loser thing. Uh, it also sounded like you are trying to actually destroy her, her chances by saying she's not the competent candidate. 
And we are basically in this extraordinary position that, you know, the only chance now for Robert Habeck to become chancellor is for her to lose. Mm. And the only chance for Markus Söder to become chancellor is for Armin Laschet to lose. So we're having this extraordinary situation that there are two very senior beasts in German politics who want their own parties or who, and we won't say whether they want their parties to lose because they will immediately deny this, mm. but we know they have a personal interest mm. in the other person to lose. And if the other person were to lose, even though this clearly is not their preference, as they say, but even if that were to happen, you know, they would stand to benefit from this. And that's sort of an interesting situation. And that's why we always keep on saying it's almost a cliche that we say things could intrude because, you know, and they can. And this is politics. I mean, five months is an awfully long time. Mm. And yes, the CDU can recover. And if you've been in this game for a long time, people like Wolfgang Schäuble have been game in this game forever. You know, if you tell him that Laschet has a bad poll rating, he would shrug his shoulders saying, so what? I mean, you know, it's five months. I mean, we'll have to talk about the poll rating at the elections. You know, and generally, I sympathize with that view that that a poll rating is, you know, people are too much reading too much. It looked like virtually all the Brexit commentary went wrong because all these people stared on the polls. Uh, I, I remember the poor pollster who once there's one well-known UK pollster who, who, you know, who predicted that the demographic trend would go against Brexit and that the second referendum would automatically be won because, you know, the the next generation of people would vote against it. He could look at sort of a linear linear extrapolation of trends. And uh, that's stupid at politics. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can't. It's like in America when somebody said, oh, the future is democratic because of demographic shifts. Politics doesn't work like that. There are things that change those curves and that, that change interests and suddenly a shift in the position of a political party suddenly attracts people that were not attracted to them before, like, you know, the Reagan Democrats, like the 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 seed the C plus strata of the population that supported Thatcher and now it's the red wall people in the, in the, in, in Britain and in Germany, these are sort of urban conservatives who support the greens now who are not, who are not green, but you know, they kind of appeal. The green is the only party, maybe Zerdo as well, but the greens are the only party that appeal to the fact that we're living in the 21st century. I mean, most of these parties like the SPD, CDU, they're 20, they're, they're running themselves like a party of a different era, industrial, smoke stacks. You know, Lasher talks about coal industry. I mean, yeah. he's a coal fan. I mean, he's, I call him the coal guy. Uh, I mean, it's astonishing for 21st century politics, politicians in this area, even to, to portray himself in this sort of interest. But it works for, has so far worked for him politically. So, you know, I would still, you know, that said, Laschet has failed to endear himself to the pop- to people. I mean, he's been he's been kind of in the game now since February last year, 2020, when Anna Great Crump Kahnbauer announced that she would step down as CDU CDU leader. Uh, he was immediately a candidate, uh, and he since ever then he he got elected. He he managed to secure the succession despite the fact that he was the least popular of the three candidates. But again, the CDU didn't care about who was popular. They just you know he worked from an internal perspective. He was in the right part of the party. He has the right connections. He is least offensive to the, a, a certainly large number of people. Where the other candidates 
you know, one, the, the Friedrich Merz, he had too many polarized, enemies, yeah. he polarized, mm -hmm. and Röttgen was too much of the left wing of the party that the right wingers didn't, didn't like. So Laschet is kind of, you know, occupies a, a, a cloud, yeah, like mm -hmm. a compromise here that was, you know, least offensive. If you, if you wanted to retain your own, if you were a regional chief and you wanted to have the, the largest amount of influence, then that is the guy who would mm -hmm. give it to you. But it's not clear that this would be the most successful chairman. Uh, but Laschet still now has failed to, you know, he's astonishingly unpopular. I mean, we saw a poll, again, hypothetical, showing that if the CSU and the CDU were to separate, so the discussion has been going on for 50 years, but it's never happened. But if if that were to happen with Söder in the lead, the, C, the CSU, the small Bavarian party, would get 24% of the votes nationwide, would be the largest party nationwide. The CDU would slump to 10%. It become like a tiny party, um, you know. That now we will not. This will never get sort of implemented because the CSU at this point, I don't think, will do this. However, you know, if this, if Lasher's popularity or lack of popularity were to translate into some, you know, into an election defeat in a state election, for example, in Saxony, Anhalt in June, or in the federal election, the CSU would have a rational reason to split. Now, I do remember one of my sort of first sort of political experiences when, when growing up in Germany in the 70s. Um, I do remember when the CSU discussed splitting off and they've been they commissioned studies and they had a, they held an emergency meeting where they discussed it and people were really, uh, really thinking it might happen. Uh, but in the end, they, just, they they dropped it because, among other things, they realized it would be costly. I mean, for example, they, they decided, I mean, that, this was not about just breaking off from the CDU, but this was about Bavaria actually breaking off from Germany. It was slightly bigger. bigger oh, okay. <laughs> you, know, you know, the classic, you know, sort of, you know, Belarus in reverse type thing. Uh, I and, see. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, so they, they, they decided mercifully not to do that. Um uh, but this and, and this time, it isn't, you know, Bavaria splitting off from Germany, but Bavaria taking over Germany. Oh. That's a slightly different, <laughs> this is a slightly different proposition. And it might work. It might just work. The interesting thing about Söder is because he's, he's not like all the other Bavarian guys, Catholic and from, you know, some Alpine type. He's <laughs> from the north of the country, from Nuremberg. <laughs> Um, Nuremberg, you know, if you look at the map of, of Germany, you, people always think of Bavaria in the south, but the north of Bavaria, you know, stretches deep north, I mean, of the country. It goes into, you know, it's sort of halfway, goes halfway up the country. Nuremberg is not southern, really. Uh, and this guy is a Protestant, he's not a Catholic. So this guy has an appeal that, you know, this guy appeals. And he comes from Munich, which is like a high tech. Uh, no, he comes from Nuremberg. No, he but he's raining. Well, he's, he's raining now. in Nuremberg, yeah. So that the image you see him yes. from uh, from Munich, yes. uh, this high tech uh, uh, city with all the vibrant the entrepreneurs, and they did really well during the Corona time. And it sort of has a good feel to it and a modernity to it, which yes. uh, North Rhine with Fade. Not like not. Dusseldorf, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Dusseldorf, yes, it's a, it's a city that has very different appeal, <laughs> shall, we, shall we say. Okay. Uh, so there is a case we, we speculated about this morning, not because we, you know, we think it's likely to happen before the election. There is a scenario where we think it might happen before the election. I mean, if the CDU, if Laschet in June, you know, if the poll rating is still uh, as disastrous as it is, the CSU would, and after the election, the lost elections, the CSU may may conclude that it's that the, the union with the CDU actually okay. damages its own 
electoral pro uh, prospects at the coming election, yeah. at which point it would become a bit of a no-brainer for the CSU to campaign separately mm -hmm. and to say, look, we're not going to be bound by this. We will seek our own luck. Uh, whether they actually run in, in other German states is another matter because the CDU would retaliate. They would run in Bavaria. But at the moment, the CSU has more to gain than uh, from other states than, the, than to lose to the CDU, but it might complicate Bavarian politics because Söder's majority is not that big in Bavaria. So he needs to be careful, you know, losing even five percentage points of his vote would be dangerous for him. So, so there are considerations that go on both sides. This is interesting. This is very interesting stuff. So this is the first German elections, I have to say, that are genuinely important. They are, it's not just because of who becomes chancellor. This is almost a secondary question. It, 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 is a, it is about whether there's going to be a change of politics after 16 years of Merkel. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen what it did. And we've been, you know, ourselves been very critical of the content of the policy on the euro area, the, the her politics, her sort of a minimalism on German energy policies, German relations with Russia and with China. You know, she's, her fingerprints are all over this. There is definite a chance of change. And, you know, the Greens are at the heart of that change. If, if it comes, it will have to be, it will be the Greens who deliver that change. But whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing is another matter, but the Greens are a vehicle of change. Uh, while, while the other parties, the SPD and CDU, including the FDP too, would be a continuity of different forms. There are different the differences between those parties, but they would promise continuity of the way Germany has been governed and has governed and has also looked at the EU. So that's that's the interesting thing, and the question then becomes, who, you know, how 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 influential will the Greens be when in government? And it's not so much; it matters less whether they have the chancellor. That matters a little bit. For example, Robert Habeck might be a finance minister. He's always said this is the mm -hmm. job he wanted. And you know, if the Greens do not come first, and you know, I don't think it's clear that they come first. You could, you could well have a situation where Laschet becomes chancellor and the Greens a strong partner, almost as big as the CDU, so they would be considered equal partners in the coalition. And when the equal partner has the finance ministry, that's a hugely important job. And the finance ministry is very powerful. It could, you know, it could, uh, so fiscal policy in Europe and in the EU could change, um, and in Germany. But that's a big change ahead. Um, so it's not about who wins and who loses, but what coalition is formed. Mm. And this is going to be very, very interesting. I, I think the most important elections in Germany since 1969. So okay. it's, it dates a while back. Wow. Okay. Uh, is there anything else we wanted to talk about this week? Or well, um, Yes, if we want to talk about the green politics and the green yeah, tech yesterday in the summit, right? Yeah, yeah. We can expand on <laughs> thinking green and take it to the EU level. Um, I mean, this is an important. This is an important uh, policy area for the European Union. And now uh, you wrote in your uh, in your take today that actually it's going to be taken over by the US. So why is that so? <laughs> <laughs> um, taken over. I've. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fair enough assessment, I guess, because as I was writing, um, Joe Biden did unveil his climate plans and climate commitments yesterday at a virtual online summit. And this included uh, basically cutting emissions in half by 2030 and then agreeing to the EU's own target of carbon neutrality by 2050, which is great news for the EU because they, uh, they did it first. And it kind of shows that the US can follow EU leadership or European leadership, at least um, in certain areas. 
Um, however, do it uh, first. Set it first. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. No, that's a fair call. Um, But yeah, the other problem with this too is just that the U.S. has so much more firepower. So if you look at the numbers, what it's planning to spend out of this 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus package something it's close to 500 billion that's been allocated to climate spending it's everything from mass transit to updating the electricity grids to you know resilience plans so hurricanes don't hit quite as hard and things like that and the eu in comparison i think it's you know a third of its spending uh, from its 750 billion euro recovery package is going to be allocated to green green projects green investment and so that's it's a much smaller number for the larger population. So the U.S. just has more fiscal firepower right now than the EU does. And furthermore, the EU is bogged down in these debates as it tries to define what exactly qualifies as green investment, something a little bit better than the Rio markers. Maybe there's been a lot of arguments and basically a stalemate over whether energy sources like nuclear and natural gas could qualify as green, whether industries like bioenergy, biofuels, and forestry could also qualify as green. And in addressing this, the commission basically just kicked the can down the road. So they had six objectives that they wanted to address with their green taxonomy. And the plan that came out this week only actually spoke to two of those. And so the rest of it, the real, the really contentious stuff has been delayed and they're going to release a new proposal in Q4. So the EU is falling behind, basically. And I can see if the US, as we were talking about last night, I think, in the editorial meeting, when the US finally decides to do something, they do tend to kind of do it quickly. It can take a while to change hearts and minds there, but then they move fast. And the EU, you know, is not quite as swift, I think, in this area. So the Europeans have a tendency to you know, to build narratives and stories about ourselves and, you know, that we, that we all about peace and that, that we, you know, f- fair society and we are equal society, we are pro-environment and we have this European way of life. And, you know, if you look behind a lot of these claims, you feel that, you know, it's true to some extent and there are certain things that we, we should be proud of, but, you know, some of these narratives are going way out of hand. And if you look at the, and especially on the environment, I mean, we've been, you know, as you've been writing, about the taxonomy of green. I mean, this is a, basically, if this was done in the private sector, you would go to jail. I mean, <laughs> basically misdeclared your accounts in the way the EU misdeclares its, uh, you know, its environmental spending. It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, shall we say, dishonest. It's not, it's not a true reflection of green spending. And uh, you know, we know that Germany is not going to meet its targets. I mean, Russia has just commissioned a coal-fired power station, yeah. and the coal will not be phased out until 2038. Yeah. We know the EU will not meet its targets uh, because uh, it has failed to reform the common agricultural policy. That would have been a necessary step to take. The smart people these days don't follow targets anymore uh, because targets, they, they matter. But, you know, you need to have these intermediate things that you need to do to meet those targets. And if you don't do these things intermediate, there's no matter whether you say climate neutrality in 2050, it makes no difference when you don't reform the common agricultural policy. Could the pressure come from um, from investors? I mean, we, we saw this week, we had a story running that green investors get 
quite picky when it comes to bond financing. I'm sure. And now I want to see a little bit more how their money is actually spent before it was like a blanket check saying, okay, it's a safe asset, so I'll put my money in. Nowadays, that is no longer the only question they have on their mind. So there will be more reporting on environment, governments, and, and social impacts of the governments who actually issue these bonds. So, I mean, you could say, say it's like a consumer kind of pressure building up who might weigh in this. I mean, we saw only last year that the volume of these green bonds, they doubled. It's still minor or tiny compared to the overall bond market. But if this momentum continues and catches up, especially now, if we are coming out of the pandemic, where actually these assessments become more crucial, you could see uh, that they matter more. Right? Yeah. And I think it's like, you can see climate change factoring into macroeconomic projections too. Like the story we ran about the the EU insurance regulators saying that companies, reinsurers now have to take climate mitigation plans into account when they build their strategies and look at the costs that climate disasters could actually have on, on their bottom line. So I think it's starting to become like the notion that green investments or could be profitable or the climate change itself could really, really hurt profits. Um, it's starting to factor more into mainstream thinking, I guess you could say. That's right. I mean, it's certainly happening in mobility. So the electric car is clearly on its way. Mm-hmm. It's happening in the domestic energy consumption as houses become more energy efficient and countries have stopped diesel as a heating fuel and that type of thing that's sort of yeah. happening now. Industry is sort of on its way. I mean, there's all this kind of emissions trading, and one needs to basically look at it sec- sector for sector to see where the, you know, where the impact. There is clearly a reduction in carbon emissions, and these investments will certainly affect the industry side of the energy market. It does not necessarily affect the the other the other areas. And agriculture is big. Okay, good. Uh, well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Until next time.